Welcome to Inside the Writer's Cafe, brought to you on webtalkradio.net. I'm Cheryl Nathan, and this is a show about books and the fascinating people who write them. Each week we feature conversations with top authors of fiction and nonfiction about their latest work. Today's nail-biting novels spin a spider's web of ancient legend, supernatural evil, and death. An ancient, mysterious golden box is the centerpiece of the latest dark and chilling Charlie Parker novel, The Whisperers, written by New York Times best-selling author John Connolly and published by Atria Books. A word of warning. Don't read The Whisperers alone after dark. Richard Deutsch continues our journey into the heart of evil with the latest Michael St. Pierre novel, Thieves of Darkness, also published by Atria Books. An ancient scepter and a deerskin chart lead Michael and his friends on a collision course with danger, murder, and tainted treasure. John Connolly was born in Dublin, Ireland. His checkered past includes working as a journalist, a barman, a local government official, a waiter, and, quote, a dog's body at Harrods Department Store in London. He studied English at Trinity College, Dublin, and journalism at Dublin City University. He spent five years working as a freelance journalist for the Irish Times newspaper, and he still contributes to that publication. John Connolly joins us today to talk about the latest in the Charlie Parker Thriller series, easy for me to say, The Whisperers. John, wow, welcome. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. Checkered past. You know, we sound like I'm on the run with Whitey Bulger. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't resist. Whitey's a lovely man. I think they got them all wrong. <laughs> I couldn't resist when I read especially that you'd been, quote, a local government official. Isn't that the party. most boring thing? It's like you worked for sometimes a tax accountant, you know? <laughs> she found it invigorating. He was invigorated by this. So, no, I, the local government, and a dog's body in Harris is actually a gopher. Because we, we don't really have gophers over here, so that word doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But they call them dog, dog's bodies in Harris. And that was very strange working for Harris, actually, because um, I went over at the, the end of the 1980s and. Um, they heard my accent, and they thought, you know, this was at a time when Irish people were still blowing stuff up a lot. And I think they, they'd heard my accent and thought, God, we can't have one of these guys in the shop floor. This is Harrods. And yet they couldn't not hire me because that would have been uh, basically racist. So uh, by a really process of extraordinary logic, I ended up in charge of all the mail and parcels coming out of Harrods department store and being sent to the great and good of England. But this was at a time when, when the, 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 the local Irish terrorists were specializing in putting bombs into parcels. And I wondered if they'd actually thought this whole thing through, really, you know. I wanted to grab Mohammed al-Fayed and say, look, I'm really sorry, much as I like the job, you know. I have a feeling you haven't thought about the wisdom of having an Irish guy sending parcels to 10 Downing Street. Just, just thought I'd put it out there for you. So that was quite an odd experience for me. That's hysterical. You have an accent? Well, I have a, I have a, yeah, you think? Um, my accent, actually, when I'm in the States, my accent changes, and I find it, it gets modified. Um, so, um, it, and I think I, and when I come home, Irish people will say that my accent is softened, softened a lot, whereas in America, I still sound like 
you know, I come from abroad, which is great because Americans like Irish accents. And so if you were, I'm very happy to have a lovely partner. But if I was still single, you know, Irish accents are one of the things that will get you a certain distance. Absolutely. Although it's very strange when when you meet, um, I often get get into American girls will say to me, oh, it's, I've a, I've a, my boyfriend's Irish and he has a lovely accent. And then they'll introduce me to the boyfriend and he'll be some kind of lunatic from Limerick with the kind of accent that makes me want to cover my watch and hold on to my wallet when I meet them. So I'm not sure that you're quite as, as, as fastidious about examining accents as you should be. We don't know the difference. Not really. No, you don't know. No. So you could, you've all ended up marrying terrible, terrible adults altogether. Irish people go, God, listen to that guy's accent. You know, even I can't understand what he's saying. And vice versa. Yes. I mean, and vice versa, right? Yeah, there, there are people in Maine who I, I listen to them talk and I just stare blankly at them. They may as well be talking, you know, Swahili to me. They have this extraordinary flattening of, of vowels that they have. And, I, and they and they have all of these little words in, in, in their language that they use that we just don't use at all. And, and I find myself bewildered by some of the things that they say. It's a, it's a constant learning process writing about Maine. Well, and you you do in this book. Now we've got to take our listeners with us just a little. This is this is a scary, dark, multi-leveled book. And I've already told you that you scared me to death one night. I made the choice to go back to sleep and not let myself be scared because I was reading the whispers. Because you've combined the supernatural with Charlie Parker, who is our wonderful private detective. So let's give our listeners a little bit of an overview of what they can expect. And can you hear me becoming Irish as I listen to you talk? <laughs> well, you tell me if you don't understand when I'm saying something. But yeah, it's it's a it's the it's the ninth book I've written about about Charlie Parker, and it is. Um, it concerns the death of a, a soldier who's come back from serving in Iraq, who has who has apparently committed suicide, and he is not the only one of of his his peers who has committed suicide. And as Parker begins to investigate, he finds that they have uh, they're involved in a smuggling operation. They have begun smuggling something across the Canadian border. Um, and he begins to take an interest in what that might be, but it turns out that the soldiers themselves are not entirely aware of what they have done because they have brought back from Iraq with them an artifact, an, an, an ancient artifact, and this artifact seems to be whispering to them. It's, there, there is something in this box. It is a gold box that is that is talking to the soldiers and maybe driving them to do what they're doing. So it is. you're right, it's a book that mixes crime with, with the supernatural, which for a long time was not the done thing in crime fiction and, and is still very much frowned upon by conservative elements. Uh, I can't remember how many times I've gone to crime conventions, particularly in England, and some some lady of a certain age wearing tweed who refers to Agatha Christie as, as Miss Christie uh, will stand up and, and berate uh, anybody who dares to put uh, a hint of the supernatural into the books because um, it goes back, I think, to the roots of mystery fiction. Mystery fiction um, is very much about the rational. Uh, if you remember Poe, who wrote the first series detective stories with Dupin, he called them tales of ratiocination. And, and if you read Sherlock Holmes, Sherlock Holmes is all about the application of logic and rationality as a way of understanding the world. And, and even coming into the kind of early 20th century, a man named Ronald Knox, Father Ronald Knox, wrote a series of rules for crime writers. And one of those rules was that there was to be no hint of the supernatural. 
them, by the way, was that there were to be no Chinamen. So I'm not sure how relevant those rules are anymore. Um, so for, there's a long-standing animosity in mystery fiction towards the supernatural, and it's based upon a kind of series of misunderstandings that actually that the uh, that somehow the supernatural is the opposite of rationality, and it really, really isn't. The opposite of, of rationality is irrationality. And I think most of us recognize that, yes, there's a lot about the world that we can understand by the application of logic. There's a lot about the world that's quite explicable. And then there are a lot of things, including human motivations, the reasons why people do, do terrible things, that are not immediately understandable and that we struggle with. And we, for those of us who, I was born a Catholic, and um, if you come from any kind of background in religion, a lot of these issues then begin, begin touching on issues of evil. What is good and what is evil? Why are we moral? Um, and then they become kind of larger metaphysical questions. And I thought I could just do something slightly different with the genre, that rather than repeat these kind of old, uh, much as I love traditional crime fiction, I, I thought there was enough of that out there. And, and I really wanted to write something different and something that, there's a lovely uh, William Gaddis quote from his novel J.R. where Gaddis says, in the next world we have justice, in this world we have the law. And I think that's really interesting. I think crime fiction, it's one of the two things, two issues that crime fiction is really, really interested in, or should be, the distinction between law and justice, because they are not the same thing. And, and, and the other one is, is, is there's a, a quote from uh, Edmund Burke, who was quite a famous Irish writer and philosopher, and very famously he said, all that it takes for evil to triumph is for good men to stand by and do nothing. Mm. And again... That's a very interesting subject because a lot of crime fiction is about the importance of not standing by. And, and, you know, you take up a case or private detectives take up a case, not necessarily because it's going to pay them a lot of money, but because not to take up the case would make them complicit in an act of evil. So I find that there's a big stew of ideas out there, and I found the best way that I could explore them or the most interesting way for me was to put a hint of the supernatural in there. You know, at no point does the ghost do it. You know, it was the ghost butler who did it. There's never going to be that answer at the end of the books. But it does suggest that there, are, that there is another world out there and that we may have to answer for, for our crimes and our active evil, acts of evil, if not in this world, then in the next one. And I think the supernatural enriches the plot tremendously, and I agree with you. I think that there is a lot of standard crime fiction out there, and that's not that does not describe this book at all. Yes, we have Charlie Parker, who's a good guy, uh, and he's a private detective, and he's involved in a case where um, a father... Uh, his son has committed suicide, and he's one of these soldiers that's involved in this smuggling operation. And on the surface, um, he shouldn't have committed suicide. He came back from the war and appeared to be doing well, and all of a sudden, he changes. And all of a sudden, the bodies of these soldiers begin to add up, and they're all suicides or apparent suicides, but... There are things about them that don't fit. And the other thing that I thought was important in this novel was the fact that you brought in the post-traumatic stress syndrome that is so real with war. And part of what you talked about in um, some of the press material was that references to the, the results of the stress of being involved in war go all the way back to the Iliad, and that we've called it by different names all the way through history. But you weave that in as well. And I thought that was important because 
you got a political statement in there as well and interwove it with the supernatural and a really great story and crime. And this is just on so many levels, John, a fascinating, captivating book, but readers shouldn't read it at night. No, well, it's, it's quite nice. But people, we quite we quite like being scared. I think it's it's nice to be. And books are that are, are that wonderful remove because you can decide how much of the book you're going to allow into you. Um, I yes. think that's all very interesting. It's, but I, one of the things I want to go back on what you were saying is that yeah, it, it is. It, I guess it's a socially aware novel in a way. I, it is not a novel that takes a side on the Iraq War. I think people are are going to decide that for themselves. And the worst thing that you can do as a writer is preach to people or make mm. people feel that a soapbox is being pulled up and they're being berated. And the nice thing about mystery fiction is that because people essentially pick up mystery novels to be entertained, yeah. you know, they're picking it up because they're on a long flight to Tulsa or wherever it may be, um, you can slip a lot of stuff under under the wire. And if you do it quite subtly, readers will go along with it. And, and my my issue with, with, with the post-traumatic stress stuff was I, a man named Tom Highland had been coming to my signings for a long time. And Tom had served in Vietnam and, and had suffered as a result of Vietnam what was then post-Vietnam syndrome. And it had affected his entire life. Um, you know, he had killed, he had, he, had, he had held his comrades while they died. And he had come back and he had tried to, to return to ordinary life. And it proved immensely difficult for him, and he had trouble with alcohol, and and you know because of that there were there were issues within the family, and he's he's overcome an awful lot of them, but he still on one level suffers from this. And I think that if you train young people to become killers and soldiers, and if you send them into these really dreadful situations, there is nothing good or easy about being a soldier in Iraq or in Afghanistan. It's it's a grim job. If you come home, you're not going to be able to to reintegrate immediately into society. You're going to need some help. And the truth of the matter is that in the UK and in the US, these soldiers have not been getting the help that they need. And those who come back injured, and more of them are coming back injured now. For a long time, we've been keeping an eye on uh, the little boxes that the New York Times had or that USA Today had, where it would tell you how many soldiers had died. And I think we get quite casual in a way because we think, well, actually not that many soldiers have died and it's slowing down. The fact of the matter is that, that injuries that would have killed soldiers in Iraq, in Vietnam uh, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, are no longer killing soldiers now because battle armor and battlefield you know, recovery is so much better. But we're returning these young men and women maimed uh, and both physically and psychologically damaged to society. And we're really not prepared to, to pay the bill. I think they have been very badly let down by by their politicians and by by some of their superior officers and um and so you can touch upon these issues in a book you know you can say actually this is just wrong whether you support the war or don't support the war you have to recognize that you have a duty towards the people who fought who fought the war in your name and um and I find that really interesting. And as, as you say it, it has always been an issue one of the figures that I found quite startling was that during the second world war uh, the Americans, when they were studying their soldiers, recognized that it took three months to break a man. It took three months on the front line to break a man. That's why, if, if anybody has, has relatives who, who served in the, in, the, in the Second World War, they'll tell you that they used to be returned to the lines. No matter how hard the fighting was, they would try to get you away from the front line for a little while so you could recuperate. Um, the U.S. is putting soldiers in the field for 14 and 15 months without respite. So we're putting young men and women in the field for five times longer that that we knew, you know, 60 years ago was enough to, to damage them psychologically. So 
I find all that quite interesting. I find it quite fascinating. And I don't think crime fiction and mystery fiction should necessarily be isolated from society and social commentary. I think it's very able to do it. But it needs to be done, like, as I say, in a very subtle way so that people don't feel that you're standing up in the soapbox and they think, oh, here comes Professor Explain It All. <laughs> so there's three pages of, you know, of telling me about stuff that I'm not all that interested in. It, it has to be interwoven and it has to be a real part of the story so that people don't feel that you're just taking time out about it. And it gives these characters uh, a, a very real smack of reality because they have been through this and their brains are rewired and then they are having this experience that is just odd. Their personalities are changing. And then Charlie is also looking at the underbelly. I mean, he goes to visit his friend who owns this really seedy bar and and we get the backstory behind a little bit of the underworld that's there. You you also made Maine somewhat of a mysterious place, I thought. Well, it, 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 I, I think Maine is, uh, is, I find Maine very interesting because Maine is, it's interesting, you're in Texas, Maine is also a frontier state, which we forget. We forget that the frontier is also to the north. You're right, we and do. It, it, it's a frontier of, of, of uh, in, immense, forests and and i think people who go to maine casually and i've been going to maine for i i worked there when i was in my early 20s so i've been going back for two decades now and i have a, a house there i think people who go to visit maine casually often just stay along the coast where you know you've got these lovely little new england towns you can go and have lobster and ice cream and it's it's very touristy and it, it's very pretty maine um and that's where most of the money in maine is it's on. It's along. It's places like Camden. It's places like Booth Bay. They they have money because the tourist dollar is coming in. Once you begin moving into the center of Maine, you've got Maine is one of the three or four poorest states in the United States, and certainly the poorest of the northern states. And there are people who are leading a hard scrabble existence out there, and they're not particularly keen on having tourists come in. They tolerate them because tourists, you know, uh, want to be guided around during hunting season, or tourists want to go fishing, but. They don't particularly like them, and, and they feel that they have been hard done by, I think, and they feel that they've been let down. And it is, it, is a, it is a strange state. It's a state that was one of the first to be settled. It has an awful lot of history. And, um, and I think sometimes if you live in a place like that, you can, you can kind of take it for granted, in the same way that when people come to Dublin to visit, they sometimes spot things that I have just ceased to notice because I'm so familiar with it, and I take it so much for granted. And I think that's one of the useful things about being a writer from outside a place sometimes. If you're prepared to put in the time and the years to get to know it, if you're prepared to talk to people, to go looking for local historians, to talk to the local police, um, and you're prepared to put those relationships in, you bring a slightly different perspective to it than somebody who would have, who had lived there all their time. Because there are main mystery writers, there are people from Maine who write mystery novels. They write them very differently from my novels. Uh, and I'm, I don't think either of us is wrong. I think we just have very different perspectives on the same thing. I agree. I agree. And you have some really creepy characters in this book, the captain, Herod, and the collector. <laughs> As I would read the scenes with those characters, my discomfort level would rise. <laughs> Yes, those they made me. I'm sitting here as we're talking, and I'm squirming because those particular characters, the 
the reality but yet the supernatural element around those three characters in particular in addition to what's going on with the we, it's the ancient supernatural that comes in here and then we have these representations of of evil in the captain and Herod and the collector or at least they yeah. feel evil to me and oh this is such a wonderful complicated novel john I, this is the first novel of yours that i've ever read it will not by any stretch of the imagination be the last because you're such a powerful writer this was an incredible book well that's really very kind of you to say on, on that issue of evil i, I suppose it is what kind of goes back to what we were talking about right at the start that I think that there are that there are different types of evil. Most people are not evil. Most people are selfish or greedy. Uh, they do things be, they, they do things without thinking. I think not actively evil. I don't believe. I I, generally, I think that people are, are probably good. Um, but at times we in, we will encounter individuals or we will encounter acts, and it will make us pause and it will make us think: Is that really true? Are there are there people who are who are just so beyond humanity that that they 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 barely qualify for the phrase anymore? And and if so, what sort of evil do they draw on? You know, is evil something that's inherently human? Is it something we bring with us? Is it something from outside us that we draw upon? And um, and so when you with those supernatural elements in the books, you get to touch upon that subject and say, look, actually, maybe there are gradations of evil. Maybe there is that kind of mundane stuff that most of us do, like cheating on our taxes or, you know, looking at the woman across the road and thinking that she looks better than your wife or whatever it may be. <laughs> They're very human little things. But, um, you know, to inflict grave pain upon another individual, to torment somebody for the sake of it, to, 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 to commit murder on a massive scale, uh, those are... Those come from from somewhere else. I sometimes think, and and so that's why I I, I kind of get to explore those subjects a little bit in the books, and and you test people, and people kind of think, well, I've never. What you want people to say is actually that's interesting. I've never really thought of that before. They don't have to agree with you or disagree with you. They just have to say that's that's interesting. There's a a quote from a an Oliver Wendell Holmes who said, "The human mind, once stretched to a new idea, never returns to its original dimensions." And I think that that's one of the things that you do very successfully in this book. You and I could talk for an hour about this <laughs> novel and about all of the ideas in it. We're really out of time, John. If our listeners want to know more about you, want to know more about The Whispers or the other novels that you've written, is there a website that they can visit? It's johnconnellybooks.com. And it's full of little bits of film and things that we've done, so it's, and interviews and, and stuff about writing and getting published. So it's a little, it's a kind of resource for people who are interested in books and writing. I hope. Well, you are absolutely a delight. I hope that we will talk again in the future. And I, I hope want so too. to. It's been a real book. pleasure. It's been my pleasure as well. Thanks for being our guest today on Inside the Writers Cafe. Thank you so much. You're listening to Inside the Writer's Cafe, brought to you on webtalkradio.net. Richard Deutsch is our author that we're about to speak with, and he is a true Renaissance man. Not only is he a skydiver, a triathlete, an expert skier, a scuba diver, an erratic golfer, he says, and an extreme sports enthusiast, but he's also an accomplished musician, playing 
and composing for both the guitar and the piano. He scored soundtracks for several independent short films, and his music has been featured on MTV, VH1, and various TV commercials. His writing is a combination of his love for adventure and his imagination, and the latest novel, The Thieves of Darkness, is an absolute thrill ride. Richard Deutsch, welcome to Inside the Writer's Cafe. Thanks so much, Cheryl. How are you? Well, I'm good. I'm good. And so are you. I mean, this is just this Michael St. Pierre. This is sort of our continuing adventure with Michael St. Pierre. Let's let's give our listeners a little preview of this book. And boy, is that a hard thing because this is a complicated plot that just runs the gamut. It's great. I love it. Oh, thank you. Tell them a little bit about what it's about. You know, Michael St. Pierre is a character I established with my first novel called The Thieves of Heaven, uh, which came out in 2006. And he is a reformed thief who, by circumstance, is you know pulled back to use his greatest skill. And what pulls him back is really always the ones he cares about being put in jeopardy. And he's faced with moral compromise and, <clears throat> um, you know, death situations that, you know, pull him all over the world. And in The Thieves of Darkness, uh, Michael is uh, starts off in an Asbequistan desert, and he has to break into a prison to rescue a friend of his, Simon Bellatori, who appeared in the last two books. But when he looks in the prison right to the right of Simon's, he finds his new girlfriend, someone he never suspected would be there and someone he couldn't understand would be in prison. And this woman, Casey, turns out to be the female version of Michael. And this story is about trying to save his friend Simon, save his friend Casey's sister. Um, And the arc of it is not only uncovering this spectacular map that's been lost to history, but it's also... Uh, Michael rediscovering his heart and uh, you know, finding this relationship with this woman, and it spans the globe from you know London and Amsterdam down to Istanbul and over into India and the Himalayas, and it was the greatest fun I've had writing, and uh, you know I'm so happy to see it finally on the shelves. Well, you told me, I mean, before we were talking about this, I'm reading this book, and I've read many of your books before. I think, actually, you and I have talked about every one of the books you've written. Yes, we have. I I always like what you do. I mean, you're always, you're fun. You always keep me on the edge of my seat. I never know exactly what's coming. And I thought, oh, Richard's really got a great imagination. He's come up with this this scroll and this snake-headed caduceus. But you told me this is based in history, which surprised me extremely. Tell me a little bit about the whole thing from reality. You know what's interesting? Um, in Topkapi Palace in Istanbul, there's a map, and it's called the Piri Reis map. And Piri Reis was an admiral in uh, the Turkish Navy back in uh, you know the 1520s. And his uncle, his, whose name was Kamal, was a corsair. He was a uh, Turkish pirate. And that is where Piri learned the sea. And Piri drew a map. And it's a spectacular map. 
and it was a, a global spanning map. And he presented half of it to uh, the ruler of what was Constantinople. Um, and it became, you know, the Ottoman Empire, and it, it had various versions down there. But this map um, in 1959, someone realized it depicted the world long before the 1600s. It actually depicted uh, the planet in 6000 BC because it showed Antarctica when it was a landmass before it was covered in ice. And it showed the coastline perfectly. And this was something that couldn't be verified until 1960 when we had satellite technology that could pierce the ice. And so here we've got this grand map of the world from 6000 B.C. And where did uh, Perry get all of this information? Where did this map truly come from? And that's really one of the stepping off points of this book. But everyone knows about this eastern half, which includes Africa and South America and Antarctica, um, of this great Perry Reese map. But what nobody realized was the western half which was the western coast of Africa all the way over to Asia, is missing. And my story really uh, goes into the what does that depict and where does that lead and why would this guy only present the eastern half of the map uh, to the ruler of uh, Istanbul. Yeah, why wouldn't he give him the whole thing? Because it really shows some fantastic parts of uh, this world. And there was something that he wanted hidden away, and he thought that the world was not ready to see. Now, you've seen this, right? Yeah, I have. Wow. I, and the book. See, you use all of this in the book. And I, I do. Thought, I thought, Richard made this up. You didn't. This came straight. That's one of the other things that I really like about you and the way you write, is that you take real historical fact, and you weave it into your books, and you're so good at it that I can't separate the the fact from Richard. I can't tell where one stops and the other begins. And that's exactly what happens in this book. And you create two incredible villains in this book. I mean, you have to have somebody in there to drive all the action. And this Philippe Venue, am I saying his name right? Yes, yes, you are. Philippe Venue is not somebody I like. And then there is this, oh, where did this guy come from? I bless. I mean, wow, what a villain. These two guys are perfect for each other, and they happen to have an alliance with one another that is not a comfortable alliance. No, you know, and what's so funny is I I love drawing characters. I love drawing, you know, and they all are uh, reflections and amalgams of various, you know, people I've known in life. And it was interesting when I wrote uh, Venue, it was a, really a combination of you know a couple bosses I had many oh, many no. years ago, and I thought, you know what, here I I didn't have to look too far for inspiration. Oh uh, dear. And uh, you know, as he's an older gentleman, I needed somebody that could be more physical and more deadly, and that's where Iblis came in. And it, you need fantastic villains. You need people that can truly challenge uh, your protagonist because the story really 
is based on the conflict between the two. And you you can never have this superhero. And uh, Michael St. Pierre is fallible. And you need some you know people to set him off against. And Iblis, while KC is the female version of Michael, Iblis, in a sense, is the dark version of Michael. You know, he is also a thief, but he's a murderer, an assassin. Um, and he is what Michael could have potentially been if Michael did not have the heart that he does. Oh, I like that characterization, and you're absolutely right. I mean, that's exactly the way that this this sets us off. And you've got a band of characters that become involved in in this whole adventure. You've got Casey, who, of course, is the new um, love interest for Michael. Simon is an interesting character in and of himself in that he's a priest, but he's sort of a priest with a twist, if you will. Yes. He's involved in this. KC is involved in this. We've got Michael involved in this. And then we have Paul Bush involved in this. Who's Paul? You know, Paul is Michael's best friend. And in the Thieves of Darkness, he started off as Michael's parole officer. And he is kind of us. He is the person that sheds doubt on, um, you know, the more fantastical elements of my stories. But he is also Michael's best friend. He's his moral barometer. You know, he's the one that truly knows him. And to me, he is such an important part of every book because, you know, he not only injects a little bit of humor, but he injects that reality. He grounds Michael. And he's somebody that knew Michael's wife uh, from the first novel and really sees the relationship uh, between Michael and KC long before Michael realizes that there is something there. And uh, I love writing Paul Bush. You know, he, it's, he's just uh, so much fun to me. And again, somebody based on an amalgam of my, you know, my closest friends. So there's always something to draw upon. And talk about a character who always has your back. Paul is yeah. that character. Uh, always, you know, Paul is that guy. You know, the, I always say you can have friends, but how many friends do you have that if you killed somebody that would help you bury the body? Right. And Paul is that one. He would give up his life for you. And in life, we have so few friends like that. But when we do, those are the ones we hold on closest to. And those are the ones that always tell us the truth. You know, the worst is when, you know, somebody's telling you, oh, you look great in that dress or, you know, you did really well at work today. And and you didn't. Mm-hmm. You know, a true friend is the one that says, you know, that looks like crap on you. <laughs> and uh, you're not really working as hard as you can. That's the real friend. And that's who Paul is. And, um, you know, I that dynamic will always exist in the books. And the interesting thing is in The Thieves of Heaven, uh, in my first draft of it, Paul Bush died, and my editor said, "You know, Richard, this character is so great, you got to bring him back." And so I, um, you know, I changed one scene in that book, and I'm so glad that I did. Because he's been a backbone ever since, hasn't he? Oh, I always has. Thieves of Heaven, Thieves of Faith, Thieves of Darkness, and I'm nearly complete with um, the fourth Michael St. Pierre book, um, which runs all over China, and. Uh, Paul is just as integral to that. So, See, one I, of the things that, that I really liked about this, too, is that Michael is a central character, but this is a journey 
And this takes them, as you said when you introduced and, and gave a synopsis of the book, all over the globe. And all of them that are involved in this plot, discovery, race against time, race against evil and the elements, all of this group of people bring something special. Each one of the characters that you write is a unique individual. And each one of the individual characters brings something to the story. Without that character, that piece wouldn't be there, and the story would not be as exciting or would not be as complete. And I like it that you've really formed a group and that they have this, not a symbiotic relationship, but a dependent relationship, one on the other. And it's not in a bad way. It's in a very positive way. And I think that's that's unique. Most of the time when you read thrillers like this. There's one person. But I like the group approach in this one. This is great. Well, thank you. You know, it's to me, you can't have your protagonist, your Michael St. Pierre character, as everything. You know, no matter what you do, um, no person can encompass all traits, you know, all parts of personalities. And um, you've got a balance between his friends, and they each you know, bring something to the story. And all of my books, uh, there's no overt, um, you know, theme to it, but there really is an underlying theme. And The Thieves of Heaven was about Michael rediscovering faith in his family, his friends, and in himself. The second one uh, was about him rediscovering hope. And this one is rediscovering love. And it's illustrated through this new relationship with Casey. It's illustrated through his friends. And you really need that core group because they each look at the same picture. But um, like the story in the, uh, was it the Bridge of San Luis Rey, um, it's a different perspective. And so they've got a different way to look at it. And it helps us as the reader see the story and what's going on in a uh, little bit different light from different people's eyes. So it's great fun to do. Yeah, I agree. And I I would get bored if I only had, like, one cool character. (laughs) Well, you don't just have one. you got five in this novel. (laughs) I just really enjoyed this. Is there anything that you want to leave the listeners with about Thieves of Darkness? You know, I think that it is one of the best stories I've written. I and I And I don't say that from an ego point of view. It's really, the first thing I ever wrote was The Thieves of Heaven, I mean, since high school. And I was ne- never took a writing course or anything else, but my stories have evolved. And I think The Thieves of Darkness is the culmination of uh, in my last few years of writing. And it is... A thriller, but it's much more than that. It, it There's a love story to it, and there is adventure to it. There's history to it. And when you walk away from reading this book, you're going to not only you know, get off a great thrill ride, you're going to want to look to the next story because it's there's a love story here. There is all of these elements you know, that get stirred up and... Um, it's one of the reasons, you know, Hollywood has just scooped this up. I can't say who it's with, but it's going to make a fantastic movie. And uh, I'm co-writing the screenplay, and 
while I've my last book, The Thirteenth Hour, is being made by Warner Brothers, um, and that's going to be a fantastic movie. I think this is going to be even greater, and will look great on the screen. So, I can't wait, and you've got to keep me in the loop, and we'll we'll maybe we'll talk when this whole thing really gets off the ground, and uh, you're able to really give more details because I know you're still in negotiation stage and writing the screenplay, et cetera. But this is just wonderful, and I want to thank you so much for taking time to be our guest today on Inside the Writer's Cafe. Cheryl, thank you so much for having me back so many times. I, I greatly appreciate it, and I so enjoy talking to you. You you know my writing as well as anybody, so it's always great fun. Hey, Richard, if you didn't write good stories and I didn't enjoy your work, we wouldn't be having all these conversations because I enjoy you too. I mean, you're you're so much fun to interview and you're so much fun to read. If any of the listeners want to find out more about you, want to find out more about the books, let's give them a website where they can go. Sure, they can go to richarddeutsch.com and Deutsch is D-O-E-T-S-C-H or they can just go to thethieves.org um, which That's is much easier. easier to spell. Exactly. <laughs> Deutsch is a little bit of a... You have Deutsch, to know. Deutsch is a mouthful and you know I spell it differently than everybody else and I consider I spell it the right way and everybody else has it wrong, but <laughs> thethieves.org will take you right to my website, and you can learn so much more about, you know, where the stories come from and, you know, a lot more of the history, you know, that takes place in The Thieves of Darkness. And uh, in The Thieves of Darkness, it actually opens in the skydiving scene, and if you know me, you're going to see how I've pulled that out of my own life. So it's a, it's a fun website. So, you know, I hope people get a chance to take a peek. Well, Richard, thanks again. Fun as always, and I can't wait for the movie. Hey, Cheryl, thank you so much, and I hope you have a great day. And we'd like to thank you, our listeners, for being with us today. And remember, until you join us next time, pick up a good book and read.